Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Today we're exploring Diva, a new exhibition at London's Victoria and Albert Museum dedicated to the costumes, artistry and cultural milieu of the leading ladies, mostly, who've stood centre stage, rapturous under the spotlights, owning the audience, with the world seemingly eating out of the palm of their very well-manicured hands. We'll see opera goddesses from the 18th century, Hollywood bombshells Bette Davis and Marilyn Monroe, musical divas such as Tina Turner, Cher and Rihanna via the blonde ambition of Madonna. The show spans disciplines, eras and outfits, subtle and less so, to tell the story of the flashbulb devouring and political power of strong women. But we'll ask if they succeed on their own terms or on ours. We'll speak to the show's curator and the fashion designer who sketched those bold and beautiful designs at the exhibition itself, and two experts on divadom here in the studio to talk talent, ambition, power and mascara. 29 minutes of divas then, coming right up here on Monocle on Culture on Monocle Radio. So, amid the hustle and various bustles of the VNA's press day for the new exhibition, I grabbed a few minutes with the curator, Kate Bailey, and I began by asking her the all-important question, what are the characteristics of a diva? Well, I think one of the things that's so fascinating about diva is it's such a multifaceted term and there's so many sides to it. So the exhibition traces a story from the origins in goddess and 19th century opera and then really looks at today. So today, I guess a diva for me is someone with a strong sense of self, of vision, of attitude, who knows who they are and knows how they can direct their lives. The sort of early diva, part one of the diva show downstairs, as you say, it starts off in opera and the, and the pre- prima donnas, I suppose. There was a sort of tragedy to the roles that they played. Does that carry through into act two, I wonder? Or, or are, they, are we seeing not necessarily stronger women, but stronger roles for women upstairs, maybe? Um, I think that's a great point, And you definitely feel the diva struggle. So those 19th century opera prima donnas who kind of had agency with, within their kind of lives to an extent but actually the roles that they played and the roles that still are performed by opera divas are often tragic heroines. So I think that's sort of embodied in the history of the, the diva persona. But I definitely feel with the Act 2, where we're in the 20th and the 21st century, it's about really celebrating the diva, where the diva can use their voice, has more agency, uses their voice for kind of uh, change and, and there's a little less tragedy. I mean, obviously, this is this supreme costumes and, and outfits and fashion in the show as well. What is it? What was it for you about some of the outfits? How do they define the characteristics of divadom, I wonder? Because there's sort of sex and fragility, a lot of power going on and power dynamics. Yeah, there's a lot of power, but there's, there's a duality. There's a duality between the public and the private. There's a sense that the diva is shaping their image and their identity. And many of the costumes really allow the diva to kind of step out on that stage and really own it so there's big costumes that give that kind of theatricality so that all eyes are on the diva so what the designers and what those kind of teams do to kind of help support the diva step out and 
become become that icon of stage is incredibly important but also you know that sense of the voice the voice and kind of taking people on this journey in this exhibition through the magical kind of songs of divas in terms of that, I used the word power in, a, in an earlier question. As we come upstairs, we see kind of slightly more sort of powerful roles. Is that borne out in the costumes as well, I wonder? There's a lot more... Well, there's, I mean, we're, we're standing next to costumes worn by Debbie Harry, Billie Eilish. We're standing behind a, a Whitney Houston wall here as well. Are we in a more powerful realm upstairs, perhaps? I guess the diva is very much in charge of her own look. The 19th century opera costumes are, you know, quite traditional, but actually when you look down to the kind of, you know, the costumes worn by the early dancers, that's a, a, a very different kind of moment. But diva power through costume is sem certainly something that we embrace in Act Two, and from the kind of rebel punk diva like Debbie Harry to, you know, the sense of Billie Eilish, you know, wearing Stella McCartney taking that strong sense of self and youth and energy onto the stage through to the share spectacular Bob Mackie costumes that really do kind of own own the stage. There are some literally, it's a beautifully designed show this and around this gallery, around this sort of domed gallery are literally stars in the firmament in these alcoves. I'm looking at Mariah there and Rihanna and Adele looking down upon us as you know the, the guiding lights but was there I mean we've got Maria Callas downstairs and Mae West and amazing amazing talents from sort of earlier eras was there a kind of prima diva in your mind as a sort of north star for this show I wonder well, I think I was looking back at the origins of the term in the 19th century. So actually, those very early divas that you probably wouldn't have heard of, Judita Pasta and Adelina Patti and Nellie Melba, those really, really early pioneers. But in terms of an anchor point in the exhibition, Maria Callas is like a pivot. So in the exhibition, we kind of explore it in three acts. The first act looks at the uh, sort of the history, and she's a really pivotal personification of the diva at the end of the first act. And I think you kind of embrace that moment and hear that voice before you kind of enter the divas of the 20th, later 20th and 21st century. But the Act 3 moment joins them together in sort of these constellations. So the idea that only one diva knows what it's like to be a diva and the sense that they are inspiring and influencing over generations and their legacy is huge. We're quite on track here in terms of costumes, in terms of professional careers. There's no private life or anything else. I wonder if that is part of the diva, the public understanding of the diva, the, the, some of the perhaps public tragedy that some of, these, some of these amazing women, mostly women, have enjoyed and endured, I wonder. Um, it's something that we do introduce in the first act. We look at the relationship of those Hollywood divas where their sort of lives were becoming public and controlled by the studio. But in Act Two, obviously there are some divas who where the pressure has been too much. And, you know, today we're looking at where divas can take control back of their lives and their social media. And also sometimes the greatest diva power is to step out of the limelight. And that's, you know, with artists like Kate Bush, you know, choosing to kind of disappear and reappear but obviously the scrutiny on the divas lives you, the public and the private that duality is is by nature of the term of the goddess the worship and the worship hers <laughs> we love them too much yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm kate bailey thank you very much indeed thank you thank you 
That was Kate Bailey, the curator of Diva at London's V&A. Now let's turn to our panel to explore further the power and possible peril of Divadom. I was joined in the studio by the film critic and cultural commentator Christina Newland and by Monocle contributing editor Fernando Augusto Pacheco. <laughs> Christina, Faye, lovely to have you both on the programme, fresh as we all are from the Diva Show at the V&A. Now, we've heard from the curator about the kind of the parts of Divadom that she was kind of hit, trying to hit in her show. But what are the characteristics, Christina, for you perhaps, of Divadom? What are the key characteristics? Uh, height and glamour. First of all, uh, whatever that particular type of identity is, it doesn't have to be a specific type of glamour. There's a traditional kind that we associate, you know, feather boas and sparkly things and so forth. It doesn't have to be that, but it has to be individual, often highly feminine, but even that may be changing these days. Um, it has to be distinctive and it has to be OTT. And creative agency also. Yeah. I think it's very important that a diva has a strong sense of what it is that they are doing creatively, whether that's musically, on stage, a strong sense of self in themselves and their art. So it sounds like there's a lot of confidence in that as well, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of purpose and confidence and sort of best foot forwardness. Faye, for you, a diva connoisseur, as listeners may know, what are your key characteristics of divadom? Well, besides all that, I think you explained very well, but I I had written one word here, remarkable. I mean, I think you do need to be remarkable. There there needs to be a special aura about you. It's certainly the opposite of common, you know, and that's why sometimes people see Diva sometimes in a negative light as well, because, I don't know, you need to kind of believe in yourself a lot that sometimes you might actually annoy people, but in a good way, because you are a Diva. Yeah, and and that's an interesting thing. Behaviour, and this we should say this diva show is very much in the showbiz. Uh, it's a showbiz show, I suppose. But we're very much on stage with people. We're less off stage. But I wonder about, in terms of behaviour, um, Fernando, we'll stick with you. This is your point about, about how people hold themselves on stage. It's something Christina alluded to as well. But what about behaviour? Because there is there's stagecraft and then there's... When do you break that when you're when you go backstage? I wonder, and I wonder how important that is for you. Well, I, f- I think the show, in a way, is part because I think these days we we like divas. I think divas are showing a very good light today. But that was not the case. I think you know a decade ago or even a few years ago. So I think there is the reclaiming of that word diva, which I think is fascinating. So even I can tell you personally, you know, that my one of my biggest divas of the all it's it's Madonna. I talked to so many people actually. Even you know, I'm a gay man. You know, we all love Madonna. Not really actually, because I've been talking to some of uh, my friends and they're like, oh, but. Her behavior. She doesn't look like she would be a friendly outside the stage, unlike some other pop stars. I was like, I don't care. That's for me <laughs> what makes it quite special about it, you know? So I'm glad they were reclaiming that because I don't like just nice pop stars or actresses. I like a little bit of a an edge, if you know what I mean. I think that's very important and I hope we don't lose that. Otherwise, I, I mean, it, everything's going to be very boring as well. Yeah. I mean, on that note, Christina, it's a really interesting point about about how behaviour can 
follow you off stage, good or bad. But it strikes me perhaps as well something that there is rock star behaviour where you can be badly behaved off stage, and it's you're a rock, you're a typically male rock star. Perhaps that's okay. But if you're a woman, you're a diva, and that can have negative connotations. It feels different somehow, doesn't it? Sure. I think, wasn't it Madonna that said about her being tough and ambitious and, you know, if that made her a bitch, then so be it. And it's sort of that it's the gender double standard and it's this idea that, you know, a powerful woman with, you know, a great deal of money at her disposal shouldn't be able to spend it possibly in very silly ways, like Barbara Streisand cloning her dogs or, you know, <laughs> demanding 10 white kittens, as was the rumor. I think it was about Mariah Carey on like a rider, yes. which is like, you know, just these really kind of what we would associate with very classic diva behavior. But I that's... think she she misread the, the tea leaves there in the BBC's Top of the Pops rider. <laughs> I think that was the Top of the Pops one as well, which is really funny <laughs> in Shepparton. <laughs> but yeah, there is there's a sense there of having an agency on stage and off, I suppose, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, nobody gets to tell them no. And that, I think, is the crux of why divas are often considered unlikable and why, you know, socially or, you know, the press certainly have attacked a lot of these women over the years because they're in the public eye and they they don't care about just smiling and being pretty. They, they're they perfectly happy to come across, you know, like, quote-unquote, spoiled bitches. But they're spoiling themselves, you yeah. know, it's their money. One of the things I was going to say as well, why I said remarkable as well, one character from the exhibition, I mean, uh, Josephine Baker, I mean, she had to be remarkable because at the time I think she she became like this first kind of uh, black ma- global star in a way. Can you imagine the amount of prejudice? Or mm-hmm. I mean, she needed that self confidence. So only a diva could do it at, at that time, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I want to go back, Christina, to your point about public scrutiny of divas. But I wonder first whether we look at the show and these mostly women are real individuals, and I wonder whether they are real individuals as artists and performers, or whether divadom is a sort of necessarily solitary thing, whether it's a solitary occupation, and whether in that, if, if that is true, that there is a sort of bit of a loneliness. We saw Greta Garbo, I just want to be alone as part of the show as well. But Christina, I wonder, I wonder what you think of that. I think there probably is some sense of solitude to it. It's sort of individual by its nature. And in order to be this kind of very unique person, whether that's um, Marilyn Monroe is an interesting example, I think, because there was no one really who had combined, you know, there was sort of, there was Jean Harlow, there were other blonde bombshells in Hollywood before her, but the level of fame that she got, the level of public scrutiny she got, the famous romances she had, there was really only one of her and everyone else that came after, like the Jane Mansfields in 50s Hollywood were copying Mm. her. And I think, yeah, it's that it's lonely at the top <laughs> yeah. thing, isn't it? Which we've seen kind of in so many biopics and so many sort of films and, and stories about these women. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be where the role is following them out of the dressing room mm-hmm. kind of thing almost. Let's tackle this this idea of public scrutiny. The show is very rich. The costumes are wonderful, as we'd expect from the, the V&A. Amazing. They've got an amazing loans uh, Meister there, I presume. But we keep on the straight and narrow of the celebration of the diva. Obviously, it's a celebratory show, but we don't see what the public think of divas or indeed how divas have been treated by the press and by extension, perhaps, the public or public interest in them. What about that? What about especially female um, divadom, um, Christina, and how they've been treated and mistreated by the press and how they become objects. It's one thing to be an object on a stage. It's one another thing to be public property, perhaps. 
I think it goes back to very like traditional kind of archetypes, stereotypes of womanhood, which is, you know, needing to fit into the the bitch category or the tragic victim category or, you know, you see that with Whitney Houston, for example. You know, the, the press and I think the patriarchy in general are very eager to create these categories and find places to, to put these women. And I think in a way, diva is a version of that or could be construed as a version of that in a, when it's used in a negative way. But what's really nice about this show and I think about the reclamation that, you know, that you were talking about of the word is that it's um, it's kind of a nice umbrella term and it is, you know, is sort of transcending that. Yeah, it does feel like that. It feels like a, I mean, it's a pleasurable show to walk around. I mean, there's time. I mean, we should say the exhibition design is wonderful. It's very dark. It's beautifully lit. The costumes and the displays, the vitrines are really beautifully lit. And one thing I know that we all wanted to talk about, and I talked about it with Kate Bailey, was the sort of we're under a, under a canopy of stars, metaphorical and literal, in this dome, aren't we, Fernando? That was amazing. <laughs> I like to call it the planetarium of divas. I'm sorry. I'll keep repeating that word because I really like it. But that's is this, is this, uh, is this a physical place that you would like to be the curator of? Exactly. Yourself? Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, what a wonderful show indeed. Uh, and and Rob, you know another thing that makes me think because especially, well, by the end when you you know if you look chrono- chronologically, when you look at the most recent divas, uh, let's say Lizzo and Billie Eilish. I mean, maybe the show is also questioning what is a diva these days? Because I have to say I was surprised, especially with, with Billie Eilish. But but maybe she is. And I, and I like that. It, you know, it's questioning. And, and by the way, this more recent divas, they're very nice. I don't see them kind of, I don't know, doing any <laughs> kind improve, of... do you? Uh, more or less. <laughs> but I, I think it was quite interesting that they actually added those new ones. And, and, and maybe we, we, we're changing, actually, the, the meaning of the word diva. A diva today is not the diva that we knew from the 50s or even the 80s, even. Yeah, you said there is a sense of to be continued, isn't there? As we see Lil Nas X, Billie Eilish mm. and contemporary stars that are not in the blonde bombshell for want of a better phrase, like the Madonna mould, I suppose. What about sex and divadom, Christina? Because it's part of divadom. It's part of on, an onstage persona that is... I, I, it's a really complex thing. And I wonder whether you can <laughs> yank the knot and make it tighter or loosen it a bit for our, our listeners. Because it's a really tough one, the, the sort of sex appeal of divas and how it's used on stage, off stage, and also as a weapon against women, I suppose. Yeah, I think it goes back to the public scrutiny thing. Um, but the finest divas have always sort of figured out how to tread the line of using that sex appeal and also, you know, being quite conscious of the fact that no matter what they do, people are going to talk about it. So they, you know, they quite aggressively own that. I think Rihanna is a great example of doing exactly that. And in every fashion choice she makes, in her kind of, I think, this kind of almost like relentlessly chic I do not care what you think attitude that she has. That's mm-hmm. I this is me. I'll let you own as much of me as as you as I'm allowing you to in a way, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. If it's complete agency over your body. Yeah. What about that Christina's point Fernando of divas kind of giving the public as much of them as they are willing to give but no more? And how how easy that is to control, I wonder. Well, and, and I think that adds to the mystique of a diva as well. And, you know, you were talking there about sex, which is also, I mean, it's undeniably, a, you know, a, a powerful subject, which you can see that in, in the exhibition. And I wonder if they're like 
teachers in a way, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because I mean, in conservative societies, I mean, people look at the divas like, oh my God, they're doing that in a way. So I think they can be quite inspiring. Of course, for women, and I can say that as a gay man, I think before I knew I was attracted to men. I knew that I loved divas, you know, before. So it was like, it's incredibly influential to my sex life, to how I perceive the world as well. So they have that power of, of being a teacher. You know, they are divas, but they are, that's why we call them icons as well. I mean, diva and icon, I think to me, they're, they feel like very similar, uh, the meaning of those two words as well. Bob Mackie talked about Cher and just said she was the most incredible person to dress. She was the most incredible. She had the most the most amazing body. He talked about Raquel Welch, or Raquel, as we should obviously <laughs> call her, because there's only one, and that's part of it, I suppose. A physical, a physicality, which is an undeniable part of divadom. Big, small, all sorts of different shapes and sizes, but a sense of physical purpose and yeah, where the spotlight simply loves you. It's difficult to put that into words, though, why that is the case. It is, isn't it? I think you're right about the icon thing. So, like, I saw Ella Fitzgerald costume from later on in her career. I think it was from sort of the 60s or 70s. But here, you know, here's a woman who has such a distinctive voice. And you can see, you know, she was, a, you know, slightly bigger woman. Like, she, and, you know, you kind of look at, then you like across the way, there's the Lizzo mm. stuff. And you see that Aretha is another great example of these women who were not in the traditional beauty mold or the traditional beauty standards for, you know, very white, thin beauty culture. And I really like that the show is acknowledging that. And I really like that it's also looking ahead to the inclusivity of the concept of the diva and what that yeah. can mean. And just finally, I want to, we've talked about the power of it, the, the sort of sense of feminine power and agency and the extreme power and attractiveness of, of this, of these performances and the women behind them. What about a sense of humour? I kind of feel like there is a sense of humour to divadom, yes. that it, there is an arched eyebrow to go with the sex appeal and the glamour and the spotlight-hugging abilities. There's something there, Fernando, right, as well? I mean, oh, yes, and there's there's a, a part of the exhibition where they show very short clips uh, from films of Marilyn Monroe, Mae West. I mean, I was smiling throughout, you know? I mean, when Mae West, the classic, when I'm good, I'm very good, but when I'm bad, I'm better. Or, actually, I've got to be honest, i never seen Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor, but after seeing that short clip, I think I need to watch it. You will therefore assume the position of a suppliant before this throne. You will kneel. I will what? On your knees. When we're talking about Hollywood personas, there is, I mean, for me, very few people as queenly as Elizabeth Taylor. She just carried herself with this kind of regal grace whilst also being you know in life very kind of salt of the earth she loved like chili and like hot dogs and she used to like <laughs> you know famously had these massive like feasts and was like yeah quite quite down to earth in many ways but she carried herself with this incredible confidence and energy that you can really you can see in cleopatra yeah but liz taylor's i think a real heroine she has real i don't give a fuck energy am i allowed to say that yeah Okay. You certainly are. <laughs> I think I think that's that sounds like an amen to this to this episode, and and also the idea of the idea of humor 
it is is part and parcel. I wanted to pass that one over to you, Christina, because you were nodding along when when Faye was was speaking there. But that feels like in so many of the performances performances we saw in this exhibition and the stuff that they chose to 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 clip out for us, it seems like that's kind of front and center of the diva persona as well, right? I think it's yeah, it's I mean self awareness as well, yeah, right? Yeah. And like so, that's kind of a, a part and parcel with the sort of humor. I mean, the diva is a creation. I don't think anyone's really... I mean, maybe. maybe I feel like maybe Madonna was born a diva, actually, now I'm thinking about it. But, I mean, it's about it's about heightened artificiality. It's about, you know, you see there's a lot of um, makeup boxes. And, you know, you're thinking about the time that's spent in constructing an image. And not just in a really traditional, like, feminine sense, but in all parts of, like, your voice and all these different things. You're, if you're an actor, you're, you know, your physicality on screen and all those elements that go into it. You have to be very self-aware about your image. And, and part of that means winking and nodding and knowing that, you know, you're playing into a certain type. I think we can leave it there. It's a beautiful note on which to end. Christina Newland and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you both very much for talking us through your favourite divas. <laughs> And finally, on today's show, Bob Mackey is the fashion designer behind countless iconic diva looks. He's dressed everyone who's anyone, including Marilyn Monroe, Tina Turner and Cher. Partially blinded while standing in front of the dazzling gems adorning some of his legendary outfits at the exhibition, I caught up with Bob and began by asking whether he considered the fact that he was designing for divas or simply thought of it as designing for performers and friends. I call you, I need you, my heart's on As a designer, a theatrical designer, you better know exactly who that is, what they look like, what they do when they're on stage or just in person. You know, you have to know how they move, what the audience wants to see them in or how they how they think of them. And, uh, you know, it's 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 got a school. <laughs> and are you how collaborative were those designs did you do a number of sketches was it a one hit wonder how much back and forth some was people that people have a lot some some clients so use the word client they're so you know like doctors you know, patients. welcome to clients at the vna yes clients um have a lot of ideas and a lot of them are very smart. They know what works for them, what doesn't. And usually the ones that have been in the business for a while. And then there are others that just trust you because you've done well with them. And th- those are most of mine. They trust me. You mentioned Cher. These are stunning, stunning outfits up here. Opening outfits for a Vegas show. Yeah. You walk out, the audience goes crazy. So this is kapow, right? Kapow. But bits and pieces come off in layers and the boys will come in and remove the collar and then later they'll remove the outer and then underneath is a whole other kind of wildness that you you know it's you it's part of the entertainment value it's it's all visual these are incredible things these are multi-layered constructions as you as you said they serve a specific purpose in a show always but quite a lot of them for her especially worked beautifully and then if if i design her something and she says well, don't I have something I can remove later? Yeah. You know, she want, she's gotten used to it. Yeah. And you get a reaction from your audience when, when you do that. 
and and it's okay. That's that's her thing. Others that put one dress on, they sing a medley of songs. They go off and they change to another dress and do another one. You know, I mean, it's yeah. it's as simple as that. When you were starting out, Bob, who were your? What were your kind of maxims? What were your? What were the kind of who blazed the trail in terms of the amazing women's wear and the performance costumes? I wonder. I never. I, you look as you were such an originator of this. I never was that interested in fashion per se. I was interested in performing. Show business was for me what, what it was all about. And then later, I realized, oh, someone say. Well, you know that that particular detail on that dress—it's all over fashion now. They're all copying it, and and I go, oh, good, okay. You know, I, it was just the way it was. And so, I mean, costume has a very different design to, to fashion, I suppose, right? So you can you can blaze a trail by doing a one-off thing that everyone sees a picture in the of. Old days, like in the '30s, women watched movies like crazy to see and movies really uh, uh, influence fashion and department stores would copy things from films or they'd get a hookup with the studio and they would advertise it as the dress that Joan Crawford wore and this, this and this, you know, it's okay. And that, it happens here too. At one point, a designer friend of mine from New York said, you know, they never, the stores would never buy a halter dress. They just said, oh, no, nobody can wear those. They, they have trouble. They don't know what kind of underwear to wear. They don't know how to do this. They don't know how to do that. And I started putting it on Cher, who could wear everything. And before you know it, she says, no, they, won't, they don't want anything but halters. And, I mean, I know you've talked about the fire dress a lot, Tina Turner's fire dress. This has been often copied, never perfected, other than by yourself and Tina wearing it. But tell us the story of that. Well, there was a time when Tina, Tina didn't have much money, and whatever she had, I sort of took it and used it for whatever. And, uh, and she, but she would go to these sort of inexpensive little boutiques, you know, on the left bank or whatever, and, and buy a dress. And... She thought, what could I do with this to make it more Tina? And uh, she'd bring them in to me when I first met her. She said, would you help me with these? And she'd put on these little cocktail dresses. And she said, do you have scissors? And we would start, you know, cutting into them and making, I mean, with those legs, those incredible legs. And uh, a good canvas there. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and great, great presence on stage and funny and, and, and just charm the audience and, and scare the hell out of them at the same time, you know. It's very important when you're known for that not to disappoint your audience. You can't d disappoint them. You have to look the way they want you, they expect you to, to look. I mean, even, I didn't do those, but the Shirley Bassey gowns, everybody expects Shirley Bassey to be just covered in beads and feathers and whatever. And you're disappointed if she comes out in just a normal little evening gown. Why, you know, why, why do that? What happened? Shortchanged. Shortchanged. You don't want that. You know? Bob Markey, um, thank you so much for talking us through a 
tiny five minutes of your wonderful career. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Bob Mackie there. And that is it for this week. Diva at the VNA is on until the 7th of May 2024. My thanks to Bob Mackie and to Kate Bailey, Christina Newland, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>